my name's Justin McLoon. I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And what's this? It's October. By the time you're listening to this, that means it's Shocktober! Uh, so, sorry to all the Max O'Fools fans. We promised O'Fools last week. Uh, we are going to get to him, but unfortunately, the clock turns to October before we could. That's so, right. We turn it into werewolves or Frankensteins yeah. or Invisible Men. So we got to follow our hearts, our worm-infested, broken hearts. Well, we decided to approach October maybe a little differently this year. We're looking at it less auteur-driven, mm-hmm. uh, less personality-driven, and more conceptually, I think. And what is more conceptual than talking about what makes a movie scary? Now, I want to tell you something, Justin. I don't scare. No? Never? Uh, well, I'm not going to say never, because <laughs> I'm going to talk about times when I was scared. But I got to say, for the most part, people talk about how scary movies are. Mm-hmm. And there's a certain suspension of disbelief that I don't think I give up a lot of the time. Like a lot of times people will say The Shining. That's such a scary movie. And I guess so. But I'm also aware that it's Jack Nicholson. Mm. You know what I mean? But doesn't that mean that you have difficulty watching any movie and breaking apart the fact that there are artisans behind the scene that there's cuts with every camera move? Yeah, actually, okay. The Shining is not a great example because there is something very scary about the breakdown, conceptually Mm -hmm. about the breakdown of the family unit like that and a man turning against his son and uh, mm-hmm. all right bad example but what i what i mean to say is there's something about being scared there's something very primal about it um, but it sounds like you want to find a feeling of being scared and people keep telling you that and you're like well it's not working for me i guess so i mean a lot not a lot of movies keep me up late at night these days mm. yeah and you know here's another thing i know all the tricks i know where the jump scares are mm-hmm. you know i'm i'm a big boy i'm a certified movie expert and as i've said on this podcast before i am a big baby when it comes to movies in that any loud noise or shock mm. will send me jumping out of my seat against my will but i'm like you i don't really sit up at night and like look at dark things in the corners but i should say i do suffer from night terrors when i do wake up seeing things in the corners unrelated to any movies that i watch oh man i used to have a coat hanger in my bedroom Mm -hmm. and i would wake up in the middle of the night and it would look like the silhouette of a person and you'd be like yeah it would happen all the time and eventually i moved the coat hanger to the other room (laughs) it was many years later took years years of this happening to me but uh, yeah i think that As far as scariness now at my old withered age, it's mostly not something I get from movies in Mm -hmm. the sense like it's very rare that a film will end and I'll have like chills down my spine because it makes me feel very uncomfortable. Oh, but it has happened to me, Mm. especially in my younger and more vulnerable years, but even more recently, too. Yeah, you're like, watch out, Bela Lugosi, that gorilla's gonna get you. So on this episode, we're gonna talk about being afraid. We're gonna talk about scary movies. What makes us afraid? What scares us in movies and also what scares society Mm -hmm. in movies? (laughs) Because we live in a society, Will. I mean... Movies are the national dream beat, to quote my personal hero, Gene Siskel. Do you remember the first time you got scared watching something, Will? I don't know if I... Well, you know, actually, I probably do. It's probably number one on my list here, like the first one, which is a little movie called The Wizard of Oz. Oh, no. How dare your parents show that to you when you were young and impressionable? That was probably the first movie I ever saw. And there were... I mean, of course, it was my first favorite movie. My mom kept the diary... And if you read the entries, it's like 
every day it's Willie watch the Wizard of Oz again just <laughs> just in the year 1992 that's all I did and you just screamed every time in the middle of the night well there were moments in that movie where I always left the room and it almost became like a ritual like people throwing toast during the Rocky Horror Picture Show you know what that reminded me of I had the same feeling as well as a kid that there were movies that when I saw them it made me so deeply uncomfortable to have to watch Jim Carrey put on that mask <laughs> that I would literally stick my head in my friends you know the rich kids that have like a little play place in the yeah. basement that you could like crawl over and i would just put my head in there because i just didn't want to see it even though i had seen it before but i just found it too probably visually and just sonically overwhelming and i did not want to experience it i also think little kids kind of decide things that they're afraid of mm -hmm. they make the decision oh that's very scary and it becomes a self-perpetuating thing i mean i don't know for for well, not for years, but for a while, there were those scenes in The Wizard of Oz I just wouldn't watch, like when the flying monkeys come and they tear the scarecrow apart, or uh, the other scene where the Wicked Witch lights the scarecrow's arm on fire, and there's like two seconds of him looking in horror at his arm <laughs> while it's burning. You go, oh, I mean, honestly, it's still scary. <laughs> so it's the physical abuse that the characters are taking that scared you. It wasn't like the monkeys flying or just the appearance of the yeah. witch that terrified you. I mean, I guess the witch scared me enough. I mean, that movie when you're a kid, it's like, the Dorothy character is definitely a surrogate for the kid. Mm -hmm. The kid can identify with that loss of parents, that sense of dislocation. Like, that's a very primal, visceral thing for a kid. And also, like, you spend so much time getting to know these characters, getting to love these characters, that when there's a, there's a threat on them... I mean, and why do you think that you couldn't make the connection of, like, I've seen this before. Why does it affect me like this? <laughs> Even though I know that they come out safe and sound at the end. I don't know. I guess it was just something about the images. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess I remembered being scared the first time I saw it, and I just didn't want to experience that trauma again. But again, it almost became just part of the experience. It became part of the ritual. Yeah, yeah. Oh, the flying monkeys are coming at this scene. I leave the room during this scene, and I stay out for X amount of time, whatever feels right, then I come back. Now, would you tell your parents this, that you're like, I do not like this scene, or would you play it casual, like, oh, I just need to get a drink of water or something and I, leave? I think I probably told them, but I'm mm -hmm. not certain. Because that's interesting of, like, how open are are you with this fear or is it something that you keep inside because you're embarrassed that you're feeling these feelings another movie that scared me a lot as a small child was batman returns mm, i mean you love that movie well i've probably said this a million times on the podcast at this point but yeah there were certain scenes of that movie like the opening scene where the penguin's parents throw his bass net into the sewer i mean that was just horrifying to me because <laughs> it could happen to you any day you still slept in a bassinet hey have i told you this story the other traumatic memory from my very early years i was probably like four or five and I'm certain I've told this on the podcast. I've told every story on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. You dressed up as a superhero called Super Willie. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Now, my grandpa was watching A Few Good Men, and mm -hmm. he said, oh, hey, Willie, uh, this movie has Jack Nicholson in it, The Joker. And, and you're like, I love The Joker. I love The Joker. I love Jack. And then the opening scene is like a soldier in a bunk who gets just beaten to death by two other soldiers. <laughs> And for months after, I mean, I actually have never seen the movie, not because I'm traumatized. <laughs> sure you're not, Will. <laughs> <laughs> not because I'm traumatized, I just, you know. Once... I feel I don't need to see it. I know who Jack Nicholson is. <laughs> well, I've seen the famous scene, yeah. you know, you can't handle the truth. Like, mm. well, come on, what more? I'm not a Rob Reiner completist. That opening scene, my 30-year-old memory of it now is, like, you almost see it from the point of view of the soldier where he's, like, waking up and he sees these two looming figures over his bed. 
Oh my god. Now, that terrifies you because you probably laid in bed thinking about that, right? For a year after, I would constantly be thinking, oh, what if I open my eyes and there are two looming figures above my bed <laughs> about to beat me to death, like the guy from A Few Good Men. See, that is a very visceral fear, like something that can happen to you, when probably my earliest film, Terrified Memory, would be watching Who Framed Roger Rabbit when Judge Doom gets run over by the steamroller oh yeah and there's nothing in that scene that i should be scared of because there's nothing that could happen to me i'm not gonna get run over by a steamroller but it's seeing something as a kid that you're not supposed to because it takes forever he screams as it happens and even the end result i believe there's a practical effect of him flat on the ground that i have a very vivid memory of hiding behind my father because i was so scared how about the scene in that movie where he dips that shoe that mm -hmm. cartoon shoe into to, uh, what's it called the stuff dip. the dip yes yeah. and it dies and then yeah. you're like wait a minute can cartoons die that's like i need to wrap my head around this that's horrifying i probably didn't see that movie till i was eight or nine mm. which is like i mean there's a difference between that and four something that would scare me as a kid and again i've mentioned this before is like in the simpsons for some reason i was so disturbed by the first halloween special with the aliens and the haunted house at the beginning but what really scared me was the edgar Allan poe story and even as as a kid i could not figure out why and i think it only rests on the idea that barton lee's are like this story's lame it's not scary but homer was scared and i didn't understand why as a child and i remember sitting in the bedroom of my dad's one bedroom apartment just laying at night could not sleep would keep waking up with a jolt and it's that it's a feeling as a kid of like i'm scared of this because adults are scared of it yeah and i don't understand it. i get it patriarchal authority has <laughs> yes. has let them down exactly so i'll tell you about some other early scared memories i have i remember wandering the aisles of blockbuster and seeing certain vhs covers that you know still linger with me today i mean they're iconic covers like night of the demons mm. a waxworks that one i love that waxworks and yeah. when you were a kid around the time that I was a kid too, there were probably big standees as well. Because mm -hmm. I remember Night of Demons 3 of her holding the lollipop that was like as big as me as when I walked into the video Terrifying. store. Terrifying. <laughs> Horrifying. Also, nothing scared me more as a kid than the concept of Freddy Krueger. The back of the first, okay, the first Nightmare on Elm Street, the front cover is scary. But did you grasp who Freddy Krueger was? I didn't know yet the concept that he invades your dreams. Mm -hmm. I think I learned that with the Simpsons episode. <laughs> That's right. But I did know that he was a burn victim who had knives for fingers. And that was scary. And I remember looking at the back of the box, which had a picture. One of the pictures in the back of the box was a man on fire. And that scared me. Yeah, I remember looking at stuff like the back of the boxes of trauma movies, like the Toxic Avenger, and just being terrified by those little images because it promised something in the film that then your youthful imagination would fill in those gaps, which makes it way more scary oftentimes than just sitting down and watching the movie. I have such a vivid memory of being so excited of going to the video store, West Coast Video in Orleans, and going around a corner and all the horror films almost made like surrounded in its own little room. Mm -hmm. And I would look at all of them and in those moments, it felt like anything that I could imagine could exist as a horror movie. I'd be like, there's seven puppet masters? How can this be? Why is there a cowboy on one? And all these films felt completely unattainable because when was I ever going to watch them? I was never going to be old enough to rent an R-rated movie. That's wild. Oh, Impossible. Yeah. yeah. I mean, did you, when did you see Gremlins? Because that's one that always gets their hooks and kids. Probably eight or nine. Mm -hmm. And I certainly liked it, but it wasn't a favorite of mine as a kid. 
did you not like it because you found it boring or is it too like disturbing no i liked it i liked it i'm trying to figure out why i didn't watch it a bunch Mm. i don't know i guess i just didn't own it on vhs and there were so many arbitrary reasons why you might own something and might not own something i mean i didn't own anything on vhs so Mm. everything was like forbidden fruit to me as a kid and it was helped by i had a friend his name was Derek, and his parents got him whatever he wanted and mm. I would go to his house and there'd be rows after rows of like he has all the leprechaun movies he has mm. all the critters movies he had the like alien toys that they made for kids that he could play with and I was like wow this like impossible world out there and that made me fascinated by it because I wanted to get in but my parents one day my mom sat me down and said you are not allowed to watch the simpsons of course, a lot of parents did that, but also any monster-related stuff like Beetlejuice cartoons. Oh. I know it was brutal, and it didn't last very long. But I remember because I was obsessed with Goosebumps as well, which mm-hmm. I would read cover to cover, and those didn't really scare me. Yeah. But I think it's like the imagination is like, where do you find a lot of imagination? You find them in horror fiction or horror movies, and it's also something that feels adult. So when you're a kid, that's the stuff that you want to experience. Absolutely. By the way, Goosebumps was great because it was one of the only book series that was just like it's third grade reading level and it also has a little bit of edge a little little bit bit of edge edge. well i was all about what is the twist at the end of the book so you flip to the back (laughs) and be like all right how does it end okay go back to the beginning because then you know that undercuts any of the terror that may arrive now moving forward a little bit to the next movie that scared me I was in grade six when I saw a little movie called Dawn of the Dead. It took me a while to see Dawn of the Dead, but the whole Dead series kind of stayed in my mind because my dad would always tell the story that when he lived in Toronto, he and his friends biked to a movie theater. They saw Night of the Living Dead. They were so scared by it. And then they had to like bike through a graveyard afterwards. And this was like a myth that he would say all the time when we talk about horror movies. And so when I finally saw Night of the Living Dead, I was like, eh, this is okay. It's scary, but it's not as scary as my dad said it was. Mm. Obviously, I got it on the Madison Home Entertainment DVD, which I still own. That I also had the Madison DVD. I bought it when I was about 10, mm-hmm. and I was very prepared to be afraid of it. You know, <laughs> Were you I, afraid when you saw it? Uh, no. In fact, I actually asked my dad to watch it with me in case I was too scared. <laughs> But yeah, no, it just turned out like it was fine. You Mm -hmm. know, I enjoyed it, certainly. And then maybe the next year I rented Dawn of the Dead from the video store thinking, oh, I can take this. And I remember those opening scenes of Dawn of the Dead where society is collapsing. (laughs) I mean, that scared me and continues to scare me. The Mm -hmm. concept of society collapsing. Yes. And it feels in a way where like there's some order here, right? But then, nope, it's just slowly just chipping away. Well, you remember Night of the Living Dead opens with a sort of sense of normalcy. Mm -hmm. You're just with these two characters in the graveyard. Then there's one zombie. And then eventually there are a bunch of zombies. Mm -hmm. And it's something that like it happened on the edges. That's the great thing about Night of the Living Dead is it actually has that psycho structure. where It's like, oh, there's our protagonist. It's Mm -hmm. Barbara. But then it's not Barbara. She falls away from the movie. I don't even think I kind of clicked onto that as a kid. Mm -hmm. And it only took me a viewing probably after I saw Dawn of the Dead to really get into it. I mean, Dawn of the Dead is very important for me because it's the movie that made me go oh i like movies i want to see more of these and it only happened because my dad was like pick a movie you take your time we can get one a minute later all right you gotta pick something i'm getting out of here and I was like, <laughs> uh, dawn of the dead you like night of living dead and i remember sitting and watching it and being like i love this i don't know if it scared me what's funny is my brother has gone on record saying it scared him and he had nightmares that night okay well i'm glad he was a human being when he was a child (laughs) i remember yeah those opening scenes 
there's that scene in the TV studio where it's so loud mm-hmm. and the colors are so intense and there's so much like profanity also like there's a scene where there's the the police crew it's like the second scene of the movie the SWAT team comes to that low income housing place and they're saying all these like racial epithets mm-hmm. and I remember just listening to that and thinking this is so this is so wrong and, and evil and then the violence is so intense it was the violence was so much more intense really than anything i'd ever seen up right to off point. the bat too there's yeah. no build-up to it because there's heads exploding there's that like chunk ripped out of the woman oh, and you my see God. it in graphic detail i still remember seeing the movie for the first time and seeing that and then as i was watching it there's the scene you know the helicopter blade cutting mm. off the zombie's head and it was at that moment that i thought uh, maybe I'm going to turn this off for a little bit. And I wasn't going to finish it. But then I had a friend over <laughs> who was like, who was like, what's this? And I was like, oh, it's, uh, I, I, it's, um, uh, do you want to watch it? <laughs> and so we watched it together. Yeah. And I remember, yeah, like that feeling of uneasiness just continued all the way from beginning to end through that movie. Like, yeah, the breakdown of civilization <laughs> in the film. And I mean, towards the end, I still remember for the first time seeing them tear out the guy and his intestines. Oh my screaming. Oh my god. (laughs) I mean, I've gone on record saying Dawn of the Dead is my favorite movie of all time because it has everything. But even just talking about it like now, it's like, wow, yeah, it starts so strong and never really lets up. And any moment of pause is one of complete uneasiness. Yeah. Because characters are constantly getting to a location looking for stuff, and you're like a zombie could pop out at any moment. There is no respite in any of this. Yeah. And the film somehow keeps that going the entire way through. And then it ends on such a down note. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they fly away in the helicopter. But, but where are they going? Yeah, they have no they have no fuel left. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I remember when I saw Day of the Dead and was disturbed in a different way where Dawn of the Dead is very open and that's what's scary about it. Day of the Dead is so claustrophobic mm-hmm. and you're stuck with these people for so long, it's miserable in a different way. Yeah, by the time I saw that one, I was ready for it. <laughs> You're like, all right, I'm 25. I think it's finally time for me to sit down and watch Day of the Dead because the friend in the room won't let me get away without watching it. I think uh, grade nine was when I saw that one for the first time. Do you remember when you became a kid that's like, I want to go and watch horror movies? I don't know if I ever had one moment like that. Mm-hmm. I think it was, I mean, when I was a little kid, I was afraid of horror. And then as I got older, horror was just part of the menu of movies you could watch. I think, you know, I was interested in... Uh, you know, when I was getting into middle school and high school and beyond in cult movies mm. instead of weirdo movies, and a lot of those are horror films. So I think if I have an interest in horror, it's because of that. Oh, because that was the opposite. It was like horror films, this is what I want to watch. And I think maybe it's because I could show these to my friends as well and it would get a visceral reaction mm. out of them. And that's what I enjoyed doing. And for me, myself, it was like, I want to see stuff that I can't see anywhere else mm. on any of the VHS that I own. Now, it's still within the confines of like Dawn of the Dead. I wasn't like, give me those guinea pig movies right. <laughs> and kind of like more of an imaginative way. But I think that's why like an obsession with horror started very early on for me. And it's something that I've continually like searched for. But at the same time, when I say horror, it's not like, give me something that scares me. I've never been like, I want a scary movie that makes me go like, ah, cause it's so easy to do that to me. That that's not something that I'm looking for. I mean, something that puts me in like a bone deep chill. Yeah, I would love to see a movie like that. But I also don't want one that's just grim, dark, like, isn't this miserable? Because I'm like, I don't want to watch this. Well, I have a complicated relationship with that feeling because, mm-hmm. like I say, I don't I, I mean, I generally don't get all that easily scared with mm-hmm. movies. So there is a part of me that that wants to be like, OK, can I find something that really does scare me? 
But then, you know, it is possible to find that and it's, uh, you know, torture videos. <laughs> yeah, and you don't want to watch the that, headings like... and stuff or mm. like stuff that's close to that. And I don't know, like that can be that can be tricky, too. Or like August Underground. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't necessarily but I don't think watch... you'd find that scary. I think you'd be like, this is gross. And yeah. that's pretty much it. Yeah. It sounds like the stuff that would scare you, again, is that, like, shaky kind of out-of-focus, like, VHS, we don't know where it came from kind of thing. That is definitely it. And that's a hit that I sometimes find myself trying to get. Mm-hmm. What's your next scary movie? I mean, when I was looking at stuff that, like, really terrified me, the list beyond the ones that I mentioned, it doesn't go that far because... Like I said, movies will make me jump, but like a bone chilling, like, oh, that was disturbing, doesn't really attack me that much because I'm not really that scared of like supernatural stuff. Like I know people that if you have demons or ghosts and stuff like that, like that really disturbs them. And to me, I'm like, meh, doesn't really bother me. Yeah. Because <laughs> I'm like, if there's some otherworldly force that I can't control, then it can just kill me. What, what can I do? I'll come back as a ghost then, I guess. Speaking of that, we don't know where it came from feeling. I remember, I think I was in sixth grade. And I fished a movie out of the previously viewed section at Rogers Video called The Worm Eaters. Mm-hmm. And that is a film by Herb Robbins, who is an associate of Ray Dennis Steckler's. And I remember watching it and just feeling really disturbed and troubled and and like, what what the hell is this? It's this very grainy, very ugly looking comedy that was made in the Deep South It was produced by Ted V. Michaels, which is a name that, of course, I didn't know at the time, although he's a prolific exploitation filmmaker. But it's about this hermit who, uh, you know, the the town is going to seize his land. But he he's a worm farmer and he has I can't quite remember some sort of formula or something that if he feeds worms to people, they will turn into worms themselves. (laughs) And the movie is full of this movie's rated PG, but it's full of scenes of people eating hot dogs and ice cream filled with worms, just close up, close up shots of them eating worms. And of course, it's rated PG because the Motion Picture Association of America probably saw this was like, where does this fall in our rules? <laughs> like watching a bunch of worms get eaten. Uh, PG, I guess. But I mean, OK, it's very gross. Mm-hmm. It's gross to watch that. But also just the vibe of the film, the southern like hick ambiance of it herb robbins central performance playing this hermit character where like i don't even know how to describe him like he's so gross he's so abject on screen so much of the film is so abject but more importantly i had no context for who made this what audience watched it where it came from like who's this who's this for is this a snuff film like And now, I mean, it's a little more demystified. I know who Herb Robbins is. Mm. I've seen him interviewed on the internet. <laughs> yes. He's a normal person. Manos, The Hands of Fate is a movie kind of like that, too. I mean, you're like, who made this? Why did they make it? Yeah. Why is it like this? And now it's extensively documented why Manos, The Hands of Fate was like that. I mean, it's almost impossible to find movies like that. Mm-hmm. And we can't be kids either again, where yeah. this kind of contextual information is completely out of our hands. So we have to fill in the gaps and we just do it with the most terrifying thing ever. This reminds me of being a kid and... I don't remember that many nightmares I have, but there's one nightmare that I woke up from it and I wanted to scream and I couldn't. I don't know if this ever happened to you where you're like the voice caught, like it's so scary. And all it was, was like parents of friends 
pulled off their faces to reveal they were like creature from the black lagoons not a monster i'm scared of wow. but this terrified me so much when i woke up and then when i finally got my bearings i was like why was that scary gosh i'm i'm not mr sigmund freud i can't <laughs> analyze that but that's interesting i mean it's the feeling of something like invaded from mars you mm. know that classic 50s film of course where you would always hear that kids would be terrified of it because of what it's about. Same thing with Invaders or the Body Snatchers, which is like the person next door that you know is not who you think they are. They could be a communist. Yeah, and you're <laughs> a kid. Worst of all. You're a kid. You're powerless. Exactly. Yeah. And like you can't get help from anyone because they won't believe you. I mean, that's what all of those movies are about. And I think that's why there's an attraction to that because even if in those movies those kids are powerless, there is a sense of they will get power by the end of the film. And that's why there's a kind of... Uh, release that you get watching horror movies. You don't always want it to be like a bummer. You want some kind of victory at the end, which restores normalcy. Yeah, which restores normalcy. And I think that roller coaster is something that even now is really fun to experience as a moviegoer. So I was about 15, maybe even 16, when I saw a little movie called... I have to stop saying that. <laughs> when I saw a movie called... Wizard Can of Oz. <laughs> <laughs> and I was so afraid. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I saw Cannibal Ferox, the Umberto Lenzi directed... When did you get Cannibal Ferox? That was about... I was probably 16, actually. That mm. was when I started going down to Bay Street Video for the first time. Mm -hmm. I would take the subway down, and I rented that movie... And I didn't really have any context for Italian exploitation movies. This is probably the first one I saw. Why Cannibal Ferox? It was because I was researching Terry Levine mm. and Aquarius releasing. Because you love Fist of Fear, Touch of Death. Exactly. And I was trying in my 16-year-old way to get an interview with him. Mm -hmm. What I would do with that interview, I don't know. <laughs> but I was trying. And yeah. so I was researching films that that company had put out. I really only cared about one of them, which was Fist of Fear, Touch of Death. I should have just asked him about that movie, mm -hmm. but I decided to look at some other ones and cannibal Ferox. I had no context for how brutal that movie was going to be. I had no context for the cannibal cycle of Italian horror films and how gory they were. You had never seen any kind of penis dismemberment on film before. Well, I certainly did when I watched that film. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and yeah, I think that movie really fucked me up. <laughs> really? Yeah, it was, I mean, it's not just the horrific violence of the film. Mm -hmm. And it is definitely one of the most extreme, not just Italian cannibal films, just one of the most extreme horror films, I think. Most most extreme above ground horror films. Last time I watched Cannibal Ferox, I was like, ooh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, but, you know, I wasn't 16 watching it, having never experienced anything like it. A dick gets cut off. Mm -hmm. A woman gets hung by her breasts on meat hooks. Mm -hmm. I mean... This is some pretty traumatic imagery. I think what really got me about, though, was the cruelty of the film. Mm. The fact that it gave you no relief at all. Like, there's a scene where one of one of the crew who's in the jungle, one of the white people, get let out by a sympathetic native boy. The little native boy is like, I like this girl. I'm going to let her get free. And when he is leading her to freedom, he accidentally, like, trips on some trap and he gets impaled. And you see him like alive while he's impaled like suffering and you're watching that thinking oh my god like no act of kindness can go unpunished in this film <laughs> nothing nothing good can happen without somebody suffering horribly and would you say that made you the hard man that you are today <laughs> well it was one of many things that's what just the school of hard knocks life i've lived i think 
When did Cannibal Holocaust come into the picture, though? The more famous one. I didn't see that one until I was in my mid-20s. Okay, so you were you knew what it was. You were ready for it. Yeah, I mean, for a long time, I think maybe still scarred from my Cannibal Ferox experience. I didn't want to... I don't know. Cannibal Holocaust just has such a reputation around it mm-hmm. as being so extreme that I, that I don't think I wanted to watch it. But then a friend and I got together to watch it, and... I know, by that point, I was ready for it. I mean, it's a film that I remember thinking, I don't need to see this movie. It has nothing really that interests me. Then when I watch it, I'm like, oh, no, this is good. I actually kind of like Cannibal Holocaust. And I mean, I could could obviously make a case against it. (laughs) Very easily. But I don't know. It's a well-made movie. Uh, It's got a lot of interesting (laughs) interesting gore. (laughs) Cannibal Holocaust is also like that documentary form that when a lot of people, the story goes, when they saw it at first, they were like, well, this has to be real. Like you'd see it on like a uh, Greek tape with like burnt in subtitles i mean the director rogero deodato was he not brought up on charges in italian he court? was indeed because he made his cast sign an agreement that they wouldn't appear in public for like a year <laughs> after it came out to foster the illusion i mean that sounds like hullabaloo but i, I want to believe it i mean i think he was arrested i don't know so what about the texas chainsaw massacre though was that one that you saw at an impressionable age I saw that one when I was 20, I think, with some friends. Mm-hmm. And uh, no, it didn't scar me or nah, anything. Nah, me neither. Yeah. I was actually more impressed by its filmmaking style because like Cannibal Holocaust, it was one that was like, do I need to see this? Because everyone's like, it's so documentary-like. Then you watch it, like... I don't know, man. Uh, Toby Hooper, while he does get an intensity, a like griminess in the film, it's also very well directed, which oh, I yeah. feel like Toby Hooper was kind of haunted by that his entire career, where it's like, people just think I can make this one kind of movie because they're thinking of the feeling Texas Chainsaw Massacre had on them rather than, you know, the way it's actually constructed. It was like dolly moves and it's well edited, well put together, just very imaginative. You're right. The things it depicts are so rough mm-hmm. and ugly. All those horror guys fell into that. Like none of those guys, like carpenter or larry cohen or who you know what have you none of them wanted to make horror movies they just got stuck doing that yeah because that's the thing that was profitable and that's the only jobs that came their way so you're saying now that you don't really look for scares these days because you don't get scared very easily right well i mean it depends every now and then i find myself with an inexplicable urge to be like what's a really bottom rung japanese horror movie like (laughs) what's a shot on video like extreme gore kind of thing because every now and then i'll just feel like i want to feel something Mm -hmm. i want to see what i can do so like i'll every now and then i'll watch something like tumbling doll of flesh Mm -hmm. uh what's that movie uh, well, that is a shot on video film that is posing as a snuff film. Mm-hmm. It opens it opens the first 20 minutes of it are a hardcore porno, essentially. And then they start dismembering the woman. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's hideous. Massacre video has put it out. Mm-hmm. Beautiful release, I'm sure. As Be- good as it's ever going to look. Beautiful. Spectacular. I mean, I think it is. Uh, I mean, if you're in the market for a really extreme and reprehensible Japanese horror movie, that one fits the bill. One thing that I do like to do is try to kind of make people uneasy and i have to say that like one of the movies that i could pick and do at a 24-hour horror movie marathon that i did was anguish and if you haven't seen the film and you don't want to be spoiled skip five minutes but what's great about that movie is that i played it and no one knew what it was so if you had never heard about it you were just seeing this kind of scary movie play out and it's about Zelda Rubenstein, who's kind of controlling her son, Michael Lerner, who is cutting people's eyes out. So like a Jess Franco kind of thing. Mm. Then what happens in the film is it cuts to the audience watching that movie 
And then suddenly they start to get murdered one by one in a very realistic fashion in the movie theater they're watching. What's great about that is everyone who was at that horror movie marathon was watching a film in a very uh, decrepit movie theater in the middle of town. They may not have known the other people with them. That is the perfect experience because that will make it a very uneasy movie to watch. Man, I think of that marathon a lot sometimes because you played Last House on Dead End Street at midnight. Oh, yep. I did not know that area of town. <laughs> it was a rainy night. Oh, it was so rainy to the point that the roof like started to leak in the cinema. Yeah, it was drafty. Mm-hmm. And so you, you're there and you're watching Last House on Dead End Street, which, again, feels like a snuff film. Yes. I'm like dozing off and then <laughs> waking, I, up. waking up and like... Oh, man, the best experience I've ever had with that movie. I think that that's probably at our age, the best way to experience films is going in completely not knowing a thing about it and just experiencing it with a bunch of strangers. Because that's the way that like horror movies, I feel like now will get under your skin. Mm. But other than that, like there's hype. You watch trailers, you watch posters. We're not kids anymore. We can't have that immediate experience that will just scare us. Now, before we leave the topic of scares and spooks and shivers, Mm -hmm. Horror movies, you know, are uniquely equipped, like, to tell us how, what a society is feeling at that time. Like, there's something inarguable about them. Mm-hmm. Uh, oftentimes in the horror genre, there are very, like, distinct trends, and those trends speak very directly to whatever society is grappling with at that moment. The so-called torture porn movies mm-hmm. uh, during a time when torture was a hot topic, or... Vietnam, yeah, and the movies reflect that. Yeah, yes. exactly. So many examples. What's happening right now? Because I kind of don't know. Because Hmm. I know that... Well, okay. Well, get ready. You know what kind of movies are coming our way, which are going to be COVID-influenced style films. Oh, God. And it won't be exactly that, but it'll be things that will kind of capture that feeling because filmmakers know that that's what everybody went through. I feel like Get Out came several weeks into the Trump administration, Mm -hmm. very early on, and it set a template for a certain kind of movie where... Like, I don't know, the idea that horror movies reflect what's going on in society, that they uh, tell us something about the times we live in, was made text Mm -hmm. in Get Out. And then there was a wave of movies that were kind of influenced by that. You know, the so-called elevated horror movies. Yeah, the A24 horror movies, if you will. Yeah, and those kind of movies seem to be made for an audience that, some of them are very good. I'm not knocking the Mm -hmm. movies necessarily yes but oh do we need to call this a horror film perhaps it is a psychological thriller (laughs) yeah and it's the fact that the subtext became text in those movies like i know it was there was a new wave of kind of like didactic horror movies Mm -hmm. and and high-toned horror movies horror movies dealing with grief and trauma and what you're trying to say is why can't horror movies just go back to thrilling us in some way Uh, Yeah, I would like to see a new wave of I, I hope we get to another wave of horror movies soon that just sort of, you know, without any deliberate attempt or without, mm. you know, I don't know. They, they just express what's going on in society in a way that doesn't call attention to itself. You know, mm. you know what I mean? Does that make sense at all? Yeah, what you're trying to say is you want horror films that don't feel important. Like that they yeah. s- like label it with important as it's coming out. They emerge. it's slow and it's very self-conscious in its style. And they emerge just right from the subconscious yeah, of, of see, a society. The problem with that is, it's what you said earlier, is that all the great horror movies that we loved back in the day were made by people that didn't want to make horror movies. And now it's people that do want to make horror films, but they want to make them reflective of what came before. And that's not the mindset that they're in. Yeah. Well, anyway, I trust the genre. I'm Mm. sure we'll get 
uh, good ones, ones that I Bring like. Bring back the monster movies. That's what I want. When's that monster cycle going to start again? I agree. It's been a while. I agree. You mean the Dark Universe isn't bringing its next <laughs> yes. film? Uh, no, I don't want them to be superheroes. You know what? Actually, Blumhouse is trying to do that because they did it with The Invisible Man, and now mm-hmm. there's going to be a werewolf film. Like, Just make low-budget movies with monsters in them, and people will go see them because they like that kind of stuff. Well, we've been scared, and we've shivered, and we've had spooks and s- thrills and chills. Do we have any letters, though? We do have letters. <laughs> and as per usual, you can send us letters at pointcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. But we also want to learn what scared you. But don't send it by letters. Let us know in the Discord of the Important Cinema Club, which you can join by becoming a patron. Just we'll talk about it in the general. And maybe me and Will will pick the best ones that people share, especially if it's recent stuff, and discuss it on an upcoming episode. Maybe. Dear Justin and Will, big fan of the show. Don't listen to many podcasts, but I've become quite obsessed with this one. Ever since a friend recommended, I check it out. Mm, Your friend has great taste. Really love the dynamic you guys got, and I always look forward to hearing your thoughts on things both familiar and foreign to me. I recently remembered a quote from one of Joey Diaz's numerous Joe Rogan appearances, in which he recalls that before Coke took over in the late 70s, every movie that came out assumed that its audience would be watching it while tripping their asses off. What are you guys' thoughts on this claim, as well as drug culture's relationship with the evolution of cinema also what are your thoughts on some notable directors who dabble in what would be dubbed psychedelic cinema such as yodorowsky gaspar noe or nick rogue any trippy films you'd want to give a shout out to thanks for doing what you do and i hope you guys have a great shocktober your fan scrim oh boy in terms of filmmakers who dabbled in the stuff i always love that old story about roger corman <laughs> that one trip he took the one trip he took before he made the movie the, the trip, trip. Mm-hmm. yeah or you know a film that does feel like an acid trip would be something like head by the monkeys uh-huh. where you're like huh okay just a bunch of sketches i guess thank you jack nicholson co-writer <laughs> of the film yeah but you know that would be a fun either topic of a patreon episode or i would just like to do all of those filmmakers like we've never done a nick rogue episode which he's a filmmaker i actually really like we should yeah because that kind of trippiness do you think that still exists now are people People making those kind of i want to say like um authentic movies because anytime you see it now it's like i'm a big fan of david lynch or something like that and it's like filtered through you know inspirations i wonder if stuff like that is happening online mm-hmm. i don't know oh yeah like, like racer, poops racer, racer trash, trash. Yeah. yeah yeah uh because that is definitely going on that vibe wavelength or you know art cinema pretty much but like the examples that he gave were also commercial cinema like midnight movies well, that were big hits. yeah back in the 70s movies were marketed around mm. that they were sort of explicitly marketed on the idea of like this is a movie and you can turn on and tune out and <laughs> uh, you know whatever the language was wait what was the last movie that was released that way like in north america by a studio well there have been a lot of like pot themed comedies mm-hmm. you know but nothing like yeah you got to show up at midnight we want to make this a midnight experience because i think that because we live in a world where everything has to open very wide and very big you can't build up audiences for anything also movie theaters most movie theaters don't want to market something around the idea of you should get stoned before you see it like <laughs> even though it's legal in canada yeah or just any kind of drug mm-hmm. right <laughs> i mean yeah don't drink any of the alcohol that we're serving at only in the vip <laughs> lounges the cineplex theaters <laughs> yeah i mean pots will probably come into everyone's vaping in their cineplex vip seats isn't there a theater in town that does something called drunken cinema yes that would be the review and it's more of a game too that's built around it okay yeah serena whitney runs that and she has like a whole kind of like you get playing cards and things like that so it's like an an experience so i guess that's 
closer to, you know, that idea of like, get high and watch this movie. But that's also an individual who's doing it as opposed to like a studio trying to co-op a trend and piggyback onto it. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for that letter. And this week on our Patreon, we're talking about horror movies, more of them, but mostly just recommendations. Did me and Will just look at our Blu-ray and DVD shelves and go, all right, what can we talk about and oh, recommend? let's not undersell it. <laughs> <laughs> Even though that's the reality of what's happening. Folks, do you like hearing us riff because yeah. we're gonna do it <laughs> yep that's what we're doing on our all horror movie episode of the patreon you can listen to at patreon.com slash the important cinema club and you'll find recommendations that all your friends will be shocked by don't you want to be the cool kid who has a horror movie that nobody uh heard about and you bring it to a party and you sit down and you're like i hope everybody's double vaxxed <laughs> yeah that doesn't sound like a cool kid to me <laughs> no oh man i love uh, showing uh, movies to my friends that they had never heard about and when you're 15 every movie that I would bring to them is a movie they've never heard about. <laughs> so again, patreon.com slash the important cinema club. All right, well, what are we doing next week? We will be talking about universal horror. Oh, sweet. Dracula, the mummy, the invisible man. <laughs> what? What? <laughs> uh, no. no, none of the classic monsters. We're talking about the other universal horrors, the lesser known ones, not the black cat either. We're going to be talking about ones that we haven't talked about. We're going to be talking about stuff that's on those blu-ray collections that shout factory put out stuff like i don't know what like panther woman of the what are those cult of things? the cobra yeah a man-made monster wait we could talk about the other black cat that came out in 1941 <laughs> we, we could talk about a film with rondo hatton perhaps. we will definitely talk about a film about rondo hatton what's great about these blu-ray sets of these universal horrors you just look at the directors and i recognize maybe one name yeah. <laughs> and i'm like oh yeah of course the director of House of Horrors, the Rondo Hatton film. Oh, of course, it's Gene Yarborough, the director of The Devil Bat, the Poverty Row Horror Classic. Yeah. <laughs> See, uh, is there artistry in these films? Is there value in them being put on these Blu-rays other than nostalgia uh, by the monster kids who do all the commentaries and special features for them? Well, I think so. And, you know, they are universal films. They're technically beautiful. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, to me, universal, that's horror. Just that vibe, just the old dark houses, the shadows. And yeah, we're just going to talk about some lesser known ones. We're going to have some fun. We're going to yeah. explore the the different corners, the strange rooms of the Universal Mansion. So that's what we're doing next week. And until then, my name's Justin Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. We interrupt this program briefly to let you know that the Important Cinema Club will be hosting a mind-melting horror movie marathon on October 16th starting at 11 a.m. at twitch.tv slash club. It will be 24 hours of horror movies programmed by me, Justin, and I can guarantee you there will be something in there that you've never seen. So please join us on October 16th at Twitch TV slash Important Cinema Club. And I would like to thank some of our new patrons who include Ronan Kelly, Jimmy R., Joe Bolsel, and Dan Quadri. Thank you very much for becoming patrons. We could not do it without you. And as per usual, if you haven't yet, review us on Apple Podcast. Your review really helps the Important Cinema Club get out there. And with that, we now return you to regular scheduled programming. Will, how do you feel about directors going back in, correcting the homework they did as young men, and then re-releasing it about the public? I am fine with it, mm -hmm. as long as they 
make the original versions available too. Absolutely. As long as they don't pull a George Lucas and say, no other version can exist, they can do whatever they want because you just don't have to consume it if you don't want it. I was quite troubled earlier this year when Criterion put out its Wong Kar Wai box set. <laughs> oh, with, yeah. With these new edits of the films that Wong Kar Wai himself supervised. I believe new color corrections. I don't think there was any new editing that was done to the films, were there? Uh, I know that Chungking Express at least has a new opening and closing credits. No! What are you doing? Which is which sucks. That's yeah. stupid. I like. If you want a new version, put it on there, but you got to put the old version on there too. I like these movies because they are a product of their time. Mm -hmm. You know. Uh, yeah, that's bad. But yes, I also don't like those color changes that Wong Kar Wai made to the films. It's like, my God, some of these movies didn't develop a reputation for looking good. Okay, you don't have to. You don't have to be afraid that you <laughs> fucked up, okay? I remember hearing, you sound like Quentin Tarantino, okay? okay. Walk our why? All right, all right. I was thinking of that as well because there was uh, a synapse release of Phenomena and there was like a dream sequence where the cinematographer was looking at the color transfer. He's like, oh, take out the blue from that. And they were like, uh, are, are you sure? Like, that's always been part of the movie. Like, yeah, yeah, take it out. And they were like, uh, okay, Ooh. if we want to do like supervise. But what they did is on the second disc, they put in the version that was oh, blue. Oh, good, so, yeah. good, good. So they sneaked it under the wire. But what I was also thinking about is that there's been kind of a wave of films recently where they're like, oh, we're doing like recuts or remasters. For example... Steven Soderbergh tricked a bunch of uh, audience members at TIFF hoping to see a new unreleased Steven Soderbergh film. And then he just showed them a recut of Kafka. Silent. Oh, what an incredible troll that <laughs> is. a beautiful His troll. least popular movie. <laughs> and not even like he's been threatening to dub it into German, which would have been interesting. But no, he just made it silent. Stuff that he's done on his website for free. He did it was like <laughs> Indiana Jones. Oh, man. <laughs> I heard from people that were there that it was fun because Steven Soderbergh is such like a uh, friendly and individual and he came out on stage and was like this is probably the only version you'll see of this i like that that's fun i also like that people were tricked and left because they were angry <laughs> i wouldn't leave no I i'd mean, be so happy to see that you're seeing a soderbergh movie that's what you wanted those are the He's people there. that are and let's be honest most of the people that probably left probably hadn't seen kafka <laughs> yeah they but wanted to see the original the new... version first and then they <laughs> <Yeah>. wanted you know <laughs> but we also have some big announcements like the fact that sylvester stallone is re-releasing rocky four I saw it's playing theatrically for one night. I couldn't see if it was playing in Toronto. If it is, we have to go. I guess. 40 new minutes in Rocky IV. That's a lot of new minutes. Okay, 40 new minutes. And he is also... that's seven montages. Yeah. Yeah, I hope it's all montage. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. He cut the robot out. He cut the robot. He cut out Polly's robot. And this is another thing. This is how I feel about Wong Kar Wai. Mm -hmm. It's like, buddy... People love the movie. People love the robot. Yeah. You don't have to change it. It's fine. Nobody's nobody's troubled by this. I would love to know like what those 40 minutes are. What could he possibly include in Rocky IV? Oh, probably. You know who gets short shrift in that movie is Talia Shire. Mm. You don't see a lot of the, the Balboa's marriage in that film. And I feel like we're going to get more emotional Ugh, shit. No. We'll probably get more of Apollo at the beginning of the movie. because I like that. Uh, a little bit of Apollo, that's yeah, fine. Yeah, whatever. But it's he's not re-editing this movie to make it more cartoonish. Okay. I mean, I love Rocky IV, and I love the cartoonishness of it. So do I. Yeah. I Yeah, I wouldn't want a more serious, somber version of that movie, but I think that's what he's going to inflict on us. No, why would you do that? Like, I guess because everybody says Rocky IV is the worst one, and to which I say, no, you're wrong. I don't think uh, Rocky V is the worst one. Yeah, I don't even think Rocky V is that bad. Also, like, Rocky IV did phenomenal box office when it came <laughs> yes. out. People loved it. People continue to love it. Yeah. It's just somebody like... 
at a dinner somewhere that said, yeah, Rocky Four, not so good, eh? After probably Sylvester Stallone already dissed it. It was like Orson Welles style where he's like, I don't really like the trial. And then Peter Bogdanovich is like, yeah, I don't like the trial either. And Orson Welles like won't let it go. He's like, how can you not like the trial? I'm sure a lot of people have joked to Stallone about the robot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was funny when he announced that he was doing this last summer, he announced it on Instagram and there were all the comments were, we're like, like, no, keep the robot. Don't cut the robot. We love the robot. <laughs> yeah. And those people are right. And also something happened that why would it ever happen? Which is the fact that Francis Ford Coppola was involved with the re-release of Dementia 13. Technically one of his first feature films. I know you want to say first film, but it's not. There's a little movie called The Bellboy and the Playgirls. <laughs> yes, that's right. Uh, but no. will he be doing a recut of that and re-release? <laughs> one can hope. Well, well, what's funny about The Bellboy and the Playgirls is a lot of that movie, they took footage from some, you know, Swedish nudie mm-hmm. movie. And Coppola shot the wraparound segments. He Isn't sh- it like him as a horny guy? We're like, oh. Is it him or is it some actor? I don't know. He and- does appear in it. I know that. Okay. It's been a while since I've seen it. I can't remember. Well, he's also involved in that Russian movie as right. well, where he shot those very phallic <laughs> monsters yeah. fighting each other. So I guess Dementia 13 is probably the first movie he shot from beginning to end. And he it was shot in three days for not a lot of money for producer Roger Corman. Mm-hmm. And so what's weird about this movie is that the story always goes that Roger Corman saw was like, ah, boring. We need reshoots. So I think like the story goes with Monty Hellman and Jack Hill got involved. Okay. Yeah, I know that there were some re-edits to it. And I love that 60 years later, mm-hmm. Francis Ford Coppola having gone on to make The Godfather. <laughs> yes. Apocalypse Now, all sorts of movies. Apparently is still lingering some some frustration over that. And he's like, no, I'm gonna go back and I'm gonna edit Dementia 13 the way it should be. And I think that's great. And you know what I love too is that he re-released The Cotton Club in like a new re-edit. He re-released The Godfather 3 in a new re-edit. You know what those didn't have? Commentary tracks. You know what Dementia 13 has? A commentary track by Francis Ford. <laughs> oh, so good. Anyway, I guess there weren't hard feelings between him and Corman because Corman, of course, is in The Godfather Part 2 uh, mm-hmm. as a senator. No, yeah. I'm, I'm sure that once he got to the position, like he was happy about those experiences. And when you watch the movie, it's good it's what it is a psycho ripoff by the way of homicidal the william castle ripoff of psycho yeah it's plenty atmospheric dimension mm-hmm. 13 i like it but yeah i am very thrilled about this new version and i'm also thrilled about it because the movie's in the public domain he can't suppress the original even if he wanted to no you can go on youtube and you can watch it right now mm-hmm. and you can check it out don't suppress it if you want to do a re-edit you can do a million of them they can just be ignored <laughs> like it doesn't matter if they're not good they will not dominate the conversation you know what re-edit i just thought of Night of the Living Dead, the John Russo version. Oh my God! <laughs> one we of the, let's talk about that. For one a second? of the biggest atrocities, and that's one that dominated that film for ages as well. For about five years, yeah. After it came out, John Russo, who was one of the crew mm-hmm. who made that film. So, for people that don't know, Night of the Living Dead, the George A. Romero film, it was supposed to be done almost like like a socialist experiment that it was not supposed to have a director. That it was supposed to be a crew of people that were going to make it, but. Clearly, uh, George Romero became the leader and he led that production. And this was a crew of people. All these people worked at the same studio Mm -hmm. and they made industrial films. They made educational films Mm -hmm. together and they decided to make a film that would be commercial. And so once this movie came out and started making Bofo Box Office, everybody knows the story that like the title changed, the copyright thing got cut off. It's in the public domain. Yeah, that technically shouldn't matter, but whatever. It's in the public domain. There's nothing that can be done about it. But John Russo, one of the people that worked on the film said, Mm, I know a way to get it back into copyright. And he did it by shooting the crappiest like wraparounds for the film. He shot maybe 20 new minutes. Mm-hmm. 
and that's interspersed. There's a new opening scene, which is horrible. Yeah. There are various bits of zombie footage throughout the movie. It's all shot in black and white, attempting to match the look of the original film. They added a new musical score. Because most of the film was like library tracks as well. And it looks exactly like what it is. An old movie that they added terrible new scenes to. And what's crazy about it was that that was the dominant version for the longest time. Whenever you went to any store, mm-hmm. that was the one they had. And you would see the face of, like, the woman on the cover. And you're like, get that out of here! I don't want to see that one! And it was called Night of the Living Dead Special Edition. Every time I would see it, you know, even as a 10-year-old, I knew about this. Every time I would see it, I was like... I want to buy this just to burn it so that some (laughs) unsuspecting person doesn't buy this and think this is the real movie. But on that note, John Russo's first directorial debut, Midnight, just out on Blu-ray. Is it good? Uh, It's interesting. He's not a good director, but I do love the shtick that he had when like he made a whole bunch of films. He became a shot on a video director as well. Okay. So that's where the good stuff is. But that Night of Living Dead stuff. Oh, so bad. I hate it so much. And that's one though. That while it did dominate it when we were like teens, it's gone now. Nobody talks about it. Oh, my God. I remember when I was in a horror film class Mm -hmm. in undergrad. No. They played a clip from it. (laughs) And it it was a clip like unintentionally because the Robarts Library had that. Mm. They played, you know, the opening cemetery scene, but it had that new music. It had that horrible new music. And were you, did you stand up and you're like, no. Uh, or you, or you like, um, you know, Dorsey Scott in hardcore. You're like, turn it off, turn it off. I did speak to the professor afterwards. <laughs> <laughs>